Why would a man with no faith or belief in God undertake a 10-month trek on foot to follow an ancient religious pilgrimage route from Canterbury to Jerusalem? The man in question is 30-year-old Guy Stagg, who has captured his astonishing 5,500-kilometre journey through 11 countries in a very personal book which has just come out. It's a tale of extraordinary, almost superhuman endeavour, of psychological ecstasy and at times despair. Moreover, it's an adventure story crammed full with quite remarkable encounters. For this edition of Things Unseen, Guy joined me in Canterbury at the very place where he set out on his epic journey. Why did you choose this route? What's it called and where are we heading? This route is the Via Francigena, which is the medieval route that pilgrims used to take when they left from Canterbury Cathedral, walked down to Dover, took the boat to France, and then walked across the continent all the way to Rome. We just passed a sign saying Rome, 1,800 kilometres. That's right, yes. Although I think if you take the modern route, it's closer to 1,900. It's not so direct anymore. Let's start with a pretty obvious question. Why on earth would you want to do this trip? In the years prior to the walk, I'd had a long period of mental illness. And I was just coming out of that period, but I didn't feel as if I'd fully recovered. I wanted to rebuild myself. I decided that a pilgrimage, that walking via Rome and Istanbul to Jerusalem, would be the best way to do that. I don't believe in God. I don't go to church. And so the idea of a religious ritual being a route towards healing was not something I understood or even admitted to myself at the time. What is it exactly you were suffering from? Was it depression? I had a, a long period of depression, which, like a lot of people when they're young, they often don't realise that there's something wrong with them. They don't go and seek help. So for a while I was drinking very heavily. I had a sort of breakdown. And then I had several years of antidepressants and of therapy. And when I got to the end of that, I was no longer suicidal, but at the same time, I didn't really have much reason to live. And so I left my life behind and went walking to go and find some sort of meaning or purpose. Were there actually times when you attempted to take your own life? At the worst period, I tried to kill myself. And then I also had quite long periods of drinking all the time, not leaving my room. I think you say in the book you're often frightened of noise, frightened of the outside world, frightened of crowds, frightened of traffic even. How appropriate as another car whizzes by us. And when you announced this decision to go on the trek, what was the reaction of your parents and your family? None of them could really understand why I had decided to embark on this pilgrimage. And at the same time, I wasn't a keen rambler or a hiker. I didn't travel that much either. And so there was nothing about my life up to that point which had really suggested this was an obvious thing for me to do. It took ten months for you to complete this journey from sub-zero temperatures in the early part of the journey going through the Alps through to the searing heat of Turkey in the Middle East. How does one pack for a journey like this? I packed for the winter knowing that I would throw clothes away or post them back to my parents and then hoping that once the weather began to improve, I would just be able to improvise. And what about finding your way? I mean, you can't take maps for the whole of ten months. When I was in France and then in Switzerland, you get maps of, of equal quality to the maps you can get of the British countryside and parts of Italy as well. But obviously, once I was in the Balkans, 
there was no mapping that I could have used. So by that point, I was just using towns and villages as markers and then freestyling in between them. And what about languages? Were you able to converse with quite a lot of the people that you were meeting? Because uh, you're fairly good at languages, aren't you? I had enough French and Italian to get through the first third of the journey. And then I found when I was in the Balkans, a lot of the older people speak Italian. In Greece, a lot of the younger people speak English. And so apart from in Turkey, where I really had little more than 20 words, I was able to talk with most of the people that I met. We've been walking up just on the outskirts here of Canterbury. We've arrived at St Augustine's Abbey. This links together the three parts of Canterbury's World Heritage Site, and it's where St Augustine, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, was buried. Do you remember stopping off here? It was one of those rare days in January where it's cold, but it's also still, and it was very, very bright. And so it was a lovely day to walk, and I remember as I was leaving the busy, congested centre of the town, walking out along this path, feeling an enormous sense of excitement. It had finally started. I was on my way. You weren't to know it at the time, but of course this is where St Augustine's monastic community lived, and of course this was like pointing the way ahead, because in your journey you were due to stay in the weeks and months ahead at lots and lots of monastic communities. That's absolutely right. I knew that there were places along these pilgrimage routes that you could stay in, but I didn't know many of the details, and I'd never visited a monastery before in my life. One of the things that struck me was, here's a man who doesn't really have much time for God and religion, forced to knock on the door endlessly of convents and monasteries and having to converse with abbots and, and nuns. And, I mean, did that irony strike you as being a bit odd when you were on your journey? I assumed that most believers were either a bit mad, a bit stupid, or afraid of death. However, when I was meeting these people day in, day out, and not only that, but they were welcoming me into their homes and looking after me, it began to change my understanding of what religion is and also how I thought about believers. Just crossing probably the most busiest road in Canterbury here. I think the medieval pilgrim didn't have to cope with pedestrian crossings and uh, car fumes and uh, four-by-fours whizzing past you. One thing I would say about your book which strikes me is that it seems that you, you seem to find a way to become vulnerable and accept people's help, which involves a certain loss of pride, doesn't it? It, it means putting your hands up and saying, I'm lost, help me, or I'm hungry, help me. But you really have to live that and feel it on this journey. The muscle of humility grew bigger over time because every day, several times a day, I would have to find someone and ask for their help. And this is not something that you like to do as a young man. I realised that I wasn't going to get anywhere unless I continually kept asking people to help me. And in the end, I found that a very valuable experience because 99 out of 100 times, when I asked people for help, they would. We've just reached the edge of Pilgrim's Way and just underneath there's a big slab of stone at a point on the North Downs Way. So I think this takes us on to a slightly quieter part of this walk. The loneliness of this journey. I mean, it seems to me like a figure of eight. Sometimes you're surrounded by people who are helping you and sometimes you just have days and days on end where you're hardly speaking to anybody. 
Does that now look like a negative experience or was it kind of purifying? Now I look back on it as a positive experience, but I was not enjoying it the entire time. Yeah. For the first half of the journey, the further I went away from home, the harder and harder I found the solitude, the memories and the brooding and the, the difficult experience of staying locked in your own head. And also, there were times where, I think particularly when you went through that very problematic section of going through the Balkans, uh, especially through Greece, where the weather was beginning to warm up quite a lot as well, it was becoming physically uncomfortable, but you, you started having doubts about whether, in fact, you were doing this journey to almost punish yourself. That's right. I'd started the journey with this almost fanciful notion that if I just made it to Jerusalem then everything would be okay. And obviously this idea was based on you know, no medical foundation, but no religious foundation either. As I say, I'm not a believer. And about halfway through, when things were beginning to get tough, I couldn't understand why I was walking, and I realised I didn't have any firm foundation. And the thing I'd hoped and expected would happen, that I would somehow rebuild, somehow become stronger, wasn't working at all. In fact, if anything, I was going back to the habits that I thought I'd escaped. We're still on Pilgrim's Way, a little kind of cul-de-sac with like five or six red brick places in this very quiet part of Canterbury, but how nice to have an address that said Five Pilgrim's Way. Maybe if the book's a great success, you'll come and have a Canterbury home here. Maybe a retirement plan. <laughs> I'm very um, taken also with one down moment that you had actually just back in Rome. You were there at Easter, and it was very telling for me, you know, somebody who is a believer. You said, I saw the Easter Day celebrations and dismissed them as a show and a sham. That was quite a negative experience for you, wasn't it? The fact that I was a non-believer walking this pilgrimage most of the time did not impact on my experience negatively at all, by which I mean I would go to a church or I'd go to a monastery, everyone would welcome me, no-one would question my faith, and I wouldn't feel that I was really left out. When I got to Rome, the city full of pilgrims and almost all of them committed believers with the enormous crowds filling the great square. I realised that I didn't belong there. I wasn't one of the believers. You were an outsider. I was an outsider, and the doubts that I had had about my pilgrimage but had kept quiet up until that point, I couldn't get away from them. As I was standing there waiting for the Easter ceremonies to begin, I found I had to get out. I was having a panic attack. And so I left the city very soon afterwards, and though I carried on walking, at that point I, I didn't know why I was putting one foot in front of the other. And maybe this was a flashback to your previous episodes of, of mental health problems where you had real fear of noise and crowds and the hustle and bustle of the, the big, busy modern world. That's right. When the depression was at a, a real low point, I found public transport, busy streets, crowds of people... All of these things were oppressive, as if some of the layers of my skin had been taken off and I could feel all of the pressures around me as so much more powerful, almost painful. As I said, the book is replete with extraordinary characters, but tell us about Max and uh, his deep, fat friar. When I got to Saint-Maurice in Switzerland, I 
found my way to the abbey at the centre of the village, knocked on the door and asked if I could stay. The guest master said, no, I'm sorry, we're on retreat, not this weekend, which basically meant that the abbey was closed for guests and that the brothers were having a time of reflection, prayer and fasting. But I said, please, please, I'm walking to Jerusalem, it's snowing outside, you've got to let me stay. So he let me stay the night and next morning at breakfast I met another brother whose name was Max and he was very interested in me and very interested in the walk and was very keen that I stayed a little longer at the abbey. The guest master insisted, he walked me to the front door, I thought that that was it. But as I was leaving, Max appeared seemingly out of nowhere, walked me back inside, snuck me up to his room, which unlike most of the austere cells belonging to the other brothers, was decked out in designer speakers, Apple computer products, and a small kitchenette hidden in one corner. Obviously comfortable with modernity. Yes. And he wasn't living too austere a life. After that, he took me through to the school, which was attached to the monastery, but which was closed, gave me a bed in one of the, the dormitories, let me stay there the night, and then, in the evening, cooked me a feast of chips on his deep-fat fryer. When you were in Greece, you stayed in Orthodox communities, and especially at Mount Athos. Was there anything there that struck you about Eastern Christianity compared with your experience of the Latin church? I was familiar enough with Anglican church services that when I was in Catholic countries, going to Catholic church services, everything was recognisable. Once I was in Orthodox countries, I had no idea what was going on. And indeed, for much of the Balkans, I was just bewildered, really. I would go into these long services, I would hear lots of chanting, I would hear lots that I didn't understand, and I would get quite bored, I'd get quite confused, and be looking forward to when it ended. The monks on Mount Athos spend about seven hours of the day in church, and when you're visiting those monasteries, you try and follow their timetable as near as possible. And it was during these very long services when I stopped trying to analyse them, to work out what was familiar and what wasn't, and just tried to let this strange contemplative experience wash over me, try and absorb it in some way. It was then that I realised that Maybe the point wasn't to try and understand it, but was just to have some sort of deeper, even emotional engagement with the, the liturgy, the music and the prayer. I think one of the Orthodox priests you spoke to said that in the Western Church, people first try to understand in order to believe, whereas in the Orthodox Church, people make a jump and a, of ascent to believe in the hope that later they might understand. And that's a very big difference. That is, yes. And, and at that point, ritual is crucial. The hope and expectation is that all of the strange stuff that will begin to make sense to you, but you've got to make that first step to take part. You had this real down point in Greece, a point of isolation and self-doubt. And it seems from the book that when you got to Turkey, everything changed. If you were almost giving points for people's friendliness and welcome, I think Turkey would win the competition. 
Yes, the people I met in Turkey were hospitable to a, a level I hadn't come across before. And unlike in much of Europe, I wasn't staying with religious communities. I was predominantly turning up in villages. But because almost every mosque had an odour attached to it, a guest room, it was very easy for me to go and explain what I was doing, and very quickly I'd be given somewhere to sleep. When I started walking in Turkey, it was Ramadan, and so I'd normally be turning up at villages around the time that the sun was setting, and I'd see a group of men waiting to go and pray, and then to go and break their fast, and so they'd invite me along to these enormous feasts which they were having in their family homes. It's extraordinary because Turkey as a country and the Turkish people often don't get a very good press, but your experience was completely to the contrary. Yes, the parts of Turkey that I was in, they're mostly farmers, and so they're comfortably off and food grows very well there, but none of them are wealthy, they live in quite simple homes. And the combination of the natural hospitality, perhaps partly the Islamic emphasis on hospitality, meant that I was treated very well. When you left Turkey, you had a complicated trip to Cyprus, then back to Turkey, then you found yourself in Lebanon. And the incident that really sticks in my mind is when you became very, very ill. There's a fairly ghastly story of losing control of your bodily functions and soiling yourself and being so weak you could hardly walk. That was a desperate day for you, wasn't it? It was. It was a very difficult time, but it built up slowly. Each day I was getting a little bit sicker, could consume less food, drink less water, and become physically more and more weak. Rather than giving up, going home, or trying to drink again, as I may have done earlier in the journey, my perspective had changed slightly, and I realised that it didn't need to destroy me, that I could keep going, and that I would eventually reach Jerusalem. Do you think if you'd been this ill several months earlier, do you think you'd have just given up? Yeah, definitely. You say in the book, after some of these real low points, that you realised that something bigger than yourself was carrying you. What was that? In recovery groups such as AA, they have the idea of the higher power. Yeah. So if you have a concept of a higher power or some sort of divine, that's going to be at the centre of the world. And you, therefore, are no longer the most important thing in the world. And that's a valuable position to be in if you want to get better, because you're not going to try and follow your own ideas, which have probably got you into the problem in the first place. You're going to look at other people's advice, ways of living, and hopefully learn from them. For myself, I did have a sense of that uncentering of shedding or losing those more selfish or self-centred versions of how my life should be and from some external source guiding me and offering a new way to live. I can't begin to think what it must have been like at the end of this journey when you, I don't know, come over a brow of a hill and for the first time in your life you see the old city. Did you punch the air? Did you burst into tears? Did you just slump on the ground and think, God, I've made it? As I was walking through the city, coming closer to Jerusalem, I told myself this was it, this was the moment, this is what I'd been waiting for. But something that big is not really something you can digest in a single moment. It takes a long time to hit you. And so when I finally saw the city, the main thing I felt was tiredness, relief, and I also wondered how early I could ring my parents without, you know, waking them up and 
ruining their sleep. In Jerusalem, you talk about a very extraordinary character called James. Uh, you describe him as like an overweight Jesus, a man with a brownish-grey beard, with a tunic and a belt around his waist. He made quite an impression on you. He did. He was living this life with no material possessions and relied on the charity of strangers. To begin with, I sort of found him curious, but mainly absurd. However, we got to spend quite a lot of time together in Jerusalem. He gave me an insight into the challenges and frustrations of his own life. And I begin to find him more and more moving. And then towards the end of my stay, he had a plastic supermarket bag with him, filled with sliced white bread and cheap slices of cheese. And as we sat outside in front of the Holy Sepulchre, as the sun was coming up and the new day was starting, he shared his meal with me. And I was so moved by somebody who had no personal possessions at all would nonetheless be so generous as to share his food. And I realised that those various personal reservations I'd had about him, those didn't matter at all. What mattered was he was living out his faith in this way. There's a slightly cheesy hymn that James reminded me of, which goes, Do not worry over what to eat, what to wear or put upon your feet. Trust and pray, go do your best today and leave it in the hands of the Lord. It seems to me that James's life was exactly that. Yes. But this, this guy wasn't a freak, he wasn't some phony, you don't think? I mean, you spent a lot of time with him and, and he was the real thing. Yes, yes, he was. And I also realised that in order to live these lives of absolute conviction or absolute commitment, you do have to have a slightly unusual type of personality. And that personality type's not going to rub everyone up the right way. And, you know, it's possibly the case that the saints and these great religious figures from the past, if you'd met them, you'd have found them strange. Um, we're still on Pilgrim's Way and we've reached some beautiful open fields. We've got birds on. We've left all those cars, thankfully, behind us. I think this is the outer limit of our walk today. We're going to do a little turn and head back now towards the cathedral. But I do want to ask you, you get to the end of this journey, what did you know at the end that you didn't know at the beginning? There was no epiphany. I didn't become a believer. I wasn't struck by lightning. I didn't fall down on my knees and start praying. The lessons of that journey, which I think I've taken about four years to learn, were much simpler and much smaller things. For example, the fact that human relations are far more sustaining than any kind of material possession. Or the fact that if you place yourself into a position of humility, you will be rewarded. Or else the fact that having difficult, unhappy, traumatic experiences in your past does not necessarily need to stay in your future. In fact, those are the very experiences that can build you up, that can make you a kinder, braver and more complete person. What I'm struck by is two things, and you tell me whether I'm right or wrong. One is your view of yourself changed. You can't be such a bad person because all these people thought you were OK and worthy of help. And secondly, maybe your view of humanity changed because you might have begun from Canterbury with a perhaps cynical or negative view of what humankind was like. 
But after this trip, there's no way you could sustain that view any further. And that's a huge turn in your understanding of both yourself and, and of the wider world. I think I agree with half of that. <laughs> Which half? I think the second half. OK. The kindness that people showed me and my estimation of myself were, were never really linked together. And what I actually found most moving about the generosity was that often it was given with absolutely no conditions at all by people who knew nothing about me and would have given to me really whatever my personal circumstances were. That unconditional kindness, even love, seemed to me perhaps the best example of what the religious life can be. The walk gave me that, and it's a lesson that I, I still hold on to today. We're here on Pilgrim's Way, and shortly we'll be getting the cathedral back in our sights. If you embarked on this as a, a response to those difficulties of depression, are those days now absolutely behind you? Are you, quote, over it? I think everybody who has that in their past has to be careful or at least be vigilant because I don't think you ever quite get over it. When I read back over the early stages of the book, the person that it's describing was me, but it's a person who's long past now and hopefully I'll never be again. And when you had a contempt in your youth at university for religion and people who practised it, has that changed the result of the people you've met on this journey? You have a respect now for faith that you didn't have before. Completely. More and more, the people who I admire, who seem to not only engage more deeply with the world that we're in, but also treat other people with a fundamental dignity, that comes out of faith. And obviously that doesn't mean that any of the big metaphysical claims are necessarily true, but as a way of living, it seems to me to have a deep truth in it. I mean, I don't want to hype this, but there were some almost near-death experiences. When was the time when you felt most in danger? There's one point where you decided to walk right through a Hezbollah village for, like, two hours. Even yes. you, you were told to get in a taxi and to get through there in a vehicle, but no, you decided that you were going to stride on and cover all the territory. I actually rarely felt at risk, and this is not because I'm a brave person. The reason was that I was innocent, I was naive. I didn't know what I was doing, and, you know, I've never had the experience of being caught up in a terrorist attack. And the first time this ever happens to you, you don't know what's going on and you're confused and you don't really have the time or opportunity to feel fear. Now, if I was to do any of those things, I would be far more hesitant, would find it far more difficult and would get scared a lot quicker. But at the time, I was sort of blithe and ignorant. So, um, any more big trips lined up? I think my walking days are probably behind me. Don't fancy becoming a monk at Mount Athos one day? This is something that my father from time to time suggests as an alternative. The one thing that I understand about monks, which I didn't understand before, is that prayer is not this peculiar habit that they get up to in the late hours of the morning. It is the centre of their practice, their life, and it's a full-time commitment. And although I'm nowhere near living that way, I remember early on in the writing of the book, when I was trying to work out how to structure my life, I had the example of these very committed people who lived in this quiet, devoted way. 
And I wondered if they maybe would have some lessons or guidance for me as I tried to learn how to become a writer. I mean, you said there was no epiphany and revelation at the end of this journey. Um, you're a young man, you're only 30. Could you completely rule out embracing God and religious faith one day? No, I couldn't rule it out, and I wouldn't want to because I don't like the thought of a personality being set or fixed. You know, having recognised that religious ritual can be meaningful, I also find it nourishing. So I, I go to church about two or three times a week, and I, you know, from time to time, read the Bible. And I find that there's plenty in there that can be helpful or valuable, even if you have doubts about some of the grander claims to do with death and resurrection. Well, Guy, we've arrived at the end of our journey. We've walked today, I'd say, about four or five, perhaps, of those uh, 5,000-plus kilometres you managed on your pilgrimage. Thanks for talking to us today at Things Unseen. The book's called The Crossway. It's published by Picador Books, and I can tell you it's a total roller coaster from start to finish. From Canterbury, my name is Mark Dowd, and Things Unseen is a CTVC production. And you can hear this programme again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.